Section 42 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. By G.K. Chesterton. Section 42. Frivolity versus Freedom. By G.K. Chesterton. In one of the newspapers in which the millionaires lay down the law for the millions, I noticed an article today which was all the more typical for being trivial. It seemed to sum up something rather curious, a kind of fanaticism of frivolity, which is being preached in such papers. Its ostensible object was a defense of bobbed hair, but its spirit was a curious flattery of fashion and innovation. Most of us understand the motives which make modern employers rather encourage this sort of modernity. Most of us know why the modern maiden, instead of saying, My mother bids me bind my hair, is expected to say, My master bids me bob my hair. But the argument offered in this case had particular points of interest. The writer indignantly denied that bobbed hair had gone out of fashion, and apparently that it would ever go out of fashion. She said that it would never be lost, any more than the automobile or any other new invention. She added, I need hardly say, a good deal more about things in general, always going forward and never going back. Well, it is interesting to know that the automobile can be compared with the notorious fixity of feminine fashions. It is something to know that a thing is as unchangeable as the hobble skirt, as immortal as the Medici collar, as fixed and final as the crinoline. The female costume must by this time be of a complex and overpowering character. If it has never abandoned anything, that it once adopted, and if all its extravagant variations are now piled one on top of the other. But as it is a little difficult to believe that bustles and hobble skirts have proved everlasting achievements, it is still possible to suspect that bobbed hair need no more be permanent than powdered hair. The very fact that it was adopted as a new fashion will be enough to prove that it will soon be very old-fashioned. But the writer's argument, which has applications to more important things, also contains another test of truth in the matter. Whatever may be said by a somewhat deeper philosophy against automobiles and motor machinery as a whole, it certainly does possess the merit here claimed for it. The motor really is progressive, and not merely in the literal sense that it progresses along a road. It is also true that it did, in process of time, progress faster and faster along a road, whether the road is the right road. In any sense, is of course quite a different question. The art of motoring did improve in that way. But how is it the art of bobbing hair to improve in that way? Is the hair to get shorter and shorter? Is the car goes swifter and swifter? Is the increasing excitement of the motorists to consist of an increasing incapacity to keep their hair on? The example is alone enough to upset the whole apple cart or rather the whole automobile, of this particular theory of progress. If we are always advancing in one direction, the result in this case will be rather alarming. A girl will not be finally free till she has shaved her head. If being bobbed is progress, then being bald is perfection. It would appear, therefore, that the controversialist in question was speaking in parables, and must in some sense be answered in parables. She could not really have meant that the world improvement of the future would consist of shorter and shorter hair, even in the sense that it might conceivably consist of quicker and quicker travel, 
but she did mean that something, a certain spirit, which for her is symbolized by bobbed hair, could be trusted to go on improving the world. And anyone reading between the lines even of her article, and still more of numbers of other articles in the same journal and the same type of journalism, knows what that spirit is. Of course, it exists in very different degrees in different people. It is stronger in some than in others. It is conscious in some and unconscious in others. But the short hair and the short motor journey certainly connote to these people a certain frivolous philosophy, difficult to define, except in their own more frivolous diction. It might be expressed by saying that their notion of joy, if it is not in being merely bobbed, is in being pretty bobbish. It might also be expressed by saying that it is not only the automobile that is expected to be fast. Now, frivolity is as old as the world, because paganism is as old as the world. Nobody need be bothered, because every class contains a certain number of people for whom progress is a euphemism for going the pace. But there is something a little interesting, historically speaking, in the obvious effort of the monopolists to popularize paganism. Their anarchism is not merely an accident, and appears persistently in paper after paper so as almost to constitute a campaign, like the journalistic campaigns during a war, with their artificial scares and scoops, that goes far beyond harmless trifles like that of this quite innocent lady, who thinks that women will rise to higher things by having her hair cut. It waged a newspaper war in defense of divorce, which was almost avowedly one of assault upon marriage. It never loses an opportunity, however trivial, of being on the frivolous side in the most frivolous quarrel, but it is equally eager to be on what it vaguely imagines to be the unorthodox side in any quarrel with orthodoxy. And it is curious to contrast this policy of looseness in ethical problems of sex with the parallel policy of savage strictness about the economic problems of labor. Plutocracy has no objection to paganism, but it has a great objection to Bolshevism. The capitalist wishes his employees to be frivolous, for fear they should be serious. In other words, the explanation is really very simple. Frivolity is a substitute for freedom. A certain slackness and loss of sexual dignity is the very real bribe now offered to those who will lose their citizenship in the servile state. They are being offered a Saturnalia of sex as a substitute for Labor Day. It is perhaps the cleverest stroke in all the strategy of the slave raiders, and like most of their strategy, it is as old as the history of slavery. Free love is the freedom of the slave. Promiscuity was the one concession by which those who were not citizens could still be communists. This truth could be attested by 20 historical illustrations. For example, it is the truth attested by both sides in the American quarrel about Negro slavery. The conflicting parties confirming each other in the very act of contradicting each other. For the northern antagonists of Negro slavery, the right way of putting it, was that households were broken up and marriage brutally disregarded. For the southern apologists of Negro slavery, the answer was that the Negroes were largely promiscuous in any case, and probably preferred to be so. In other words, one disputant complained that slave families were disregarded, and the other disputant consoled him by saying that there were no slave families to disregard. Between these two arguments, it will not be difficult for a third party to infer at least that no very rigid code of fidelity in these matters was actually demanded of the black man by the white. 
nor will it be demanded of a white slave any more than of a black one. Indeed, in this sense, there is a great truth in the journalistic and rather sensational use of the phrase white slave. In one sense, the white slave may have a great deal of liberty. For those who interpret it merely as laxity, the white slaves of the old pagan world often attained all that a free lover would call freedom. And the master of the new servile state will say to the servile proletarian of the future exactly what the lord of the pagan slave state said to the pagan slave or the lord of the negro slave state to the negro slave so far as sex is concerned you can pretty well let yourself go as often as you have the chance you have no family heritage you have no family name you have no property you have no reputation it does not matter whether your children are legitimate or illegitimate for there is nothing that they can legitimately inherit it does not matter whether your family remains respectable for nobody will be called upon to respect it for me you are simply something that is meant to work and it does not matter to me how or when you manage to play lucky bruise run away and play and thank your brute gods that you have no vows and that you have no honor that you have no name that was the pagan attitude and that is the common human attitude towards slaves and that is the attitude of the modern press to the modern proletariat insofar as they are merely pagan but there is this difference that in countries where the christian tradition has been there is also something that is not pagan but rather puritan for puritanism is a disease of christianity just as capitalism is a disease of property therefore the modern world suffers more from the ancient world from fads that have the intensity of fates, at least has so suffered ever since the Reformation, that is, ever since the sort of enthusiast who was once content to found a religious order felt it necessary to found a religion. The Puritan vinegar was the second fermentation of the Christian wine. Whenever this acid fermentation is taking place, there is another element complicating the natural connection between slavery and free love. The Puritan feels a responsibility for the slave without feeling a respect for the man. He cannot forget the morality of the thing even when he means to make it more moral. And as the corruption of the best is the worst, the Puritan tyranny is worse than the pagan tyranny. It cannot rise to the carelessness of paganism. It is not content with making the labors of the servant useful to the master. It wishes to make the very pleasures of the servant also useful to the master. From this arises all the capitalist philanthropy, which enforces athletics or overseas amusements. It is stating a very grim and ironic truth in saying that it encourages exercise. Here all entertainment is exercise, and only exercise, for it is the preparation for something else. Play is only exercise for work, and work is not work for the profit of the worker, but of the owner. The worker enjoys even sport, for the sake of something else, for the benefit of somebody else. From this also, of course, comes every kind of discipline regarding the diet of the slaves. Tatalism today, and possibly vegetarianism tomorrow. From this, finally, comes the insane insolence of eugenics. It seeks to use the pleasure of sex, just as it uses the pleasure of sport. If there lingers some shadowy difference in the party politics, even of this last and most ludicrous of political elections, perhaps this is the difference. 
if there really are two parties. Perhaps they are the two parties of the pagan slave owner and the Puritan slave owner. The former uses sexuality as bait for slavery. The latter is more scientific and would enslave even sex. Between these two types of slavery, it might be an interesting problem to choose. I do not know any constituency where a third candidate is standing for freedom. End of section 42. Recording by Arden.